It's good to be able to start our series in the book of James this morning. Probably uh, uh, the first book written in the New Testament, and it's just a great book. It's an opportunity for us to hear some practical ideas and thoughts how to live our life as believers, and, and it's, it's a sort of put-to-use type of book. That's why we're calling it Faith That Walks. Written by James, we know this wasn't the Apostle James, because the Apostle James, his brother was John, was martyred by Herod Agrippa. This is another James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Think about that. How'd you like your sibling to be Jesus, <laughs> you know? A little bit different, right? I mean, maybe sharing a bedroom with Jesus. You get up in the morning, Jesus is there. You go through your day, go to supper that night, Jesus is there. You know, it's, you, can you imagine what that was like? You know, maybe James went through some serious sibling rivalry there, you know? I don't know, but, you know, especially with siblings, you know how it can be how, as if you've got an older sibling sort of being compared to them all the time, you know? I had a little bit of experience with that because I followed Pam. And, and if you've been around, haven't been around our church very long, Pam, Kevin's wife, Pastor Kevin's wife, is my sister. And so I, you know, I came after Pam and everybody's like, I heard all the positives about Pam, you know? And, uh, and so you're, you're Pam's little brother. She's so nice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she can really play the piano. Yeah. She gets straight A's. Okay. I don't know. The, 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 those teachers had some seriously flawed, preconceived ideas of what I should be <laughs> in light of who Pam was. Uh, can you imagine having the perfect older brother? I mean, Perfect. Maybe that's part of the reason James didn't believe. I mean, if you're a skeptic, you'd fit right in with James because he was too. In fact, John told us that none of Jesus' brothers were believing in him. But something changed with James. James eventually came to faith. We're not told when or how. You know, uh, maybe he was there the, the night that Jesus was arrested in the garden. Maybe he watched that happen. Maybe he stood back as Jesus was on trial and watched as uh, Jesus went through that and was beaten. Maybe he stood at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die. Or maybe he was at the tomb when they placed Jesus' body there and rolled the stone over it. Maybe he saw the resurrected Jesus. In fact, we know he did. James, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that, that James saw Jesus appeared to James. Among all the other people that Jesus appeared to, he appeared to James, who we believe is this James here. And J James had a life-changing moment, a profound life-changing moment. So much so that in the years to come, he was martyred for his faith. Josephus tells us that in AD 62, the chief priest took James up to the pinnacle of the temple and threw him off. Unfortunately for them, he didn't die. 
So they went down where he was at and took clubs and stones and beat him to death. A a profound, life-changing moment. 20 years later, earlier, James writes this letter. Having lived a committed life. And he starts writing here, he says, James 1, 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bondservant. I'm a slave. James went from skeptic of Jesus to slave of Jesus. And you talk about a complete turnaround. Here he is. He's rec- not only that, he's recognizing who Jesus is. He's Lord Jesus Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the one that we were expecting. He's fully bought in. It's also interesting to me that he doesn't say, I'm Jesus' brother. I mean, if, if I were writing this letter, I, I think I would throw in, I'm a, I'm a brother of Jesus. If someone else is writing this and claiming to, to be James, as some have suggested, There's no doubt they would have mentioned their relationship to Jesus. The fact that he doesn't mention it is proof to me that this isn't someone pretending to be James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he's writing. He's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. 12 tribes dispersed abroad. There's persecution broken out. He's writing primarily to Jewish believers who have have fled out of persecution these are people who have lost their homes. These are people who are, have lost their livelihoods. They're facing difficult times, and they're struggling in unfamiliar places. Probably wondering what in the world is going on. And so the first thing that James says to them in verse 2 is, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it all joy. And they're probably like, whoa, Pete James, what do you mean consider it all joy? We've run, we're being persecuted, we've run, we've left home, we don't have anything. Consider it all joy, are you crazy? I mean, it sounds really spiritual, James, but come on, that's not reality. And if you knew what I was facing right now, you wouldn't be saying that. But you notice James isn't saying that what they're going through is no big deal. That's why he says, consider it, weigh it out, think it through. Because our first reaction when we face trials is not to think, it's to feel. You know, we just respond by how we feel. And our first reaction is usually something like fear or sadness or anger or frustration. So James like, consider it, think it through. You need to come to a settled, logical conclusion. When you fall, notice it's not if you face trials, but when you face trials, they're going to happen. And, and it's not just a trial, it's various trials because we don't have just one. Sometimes they come in bunches, right? It's like they, they hit you all at once, all different forms from all different angles. So this challenge from James is, is really a stunning challenge. We've got all these trials hitting us from all different directions. And on top of that, we know also that James doesn't just say consider it joy. He says consider it all joy, 
All of it. Not just the things that we feel like we can sort of handle, and we can make our way through. All of it. That's not saying, hey, put on a fake smile and pretend like things are good. That's not saying we should, we're, we're in some mindset where we don't recognize how difficult our trials may be. That'd be totally unrealistic. It's saying there's joy in all circumstances, even the tough ones, even the sorrowful ones. You know, I think the ability to experience joy at the same time as sorrow is a mark of our faith. I mean, think about, that's why some of the most joy-filled Christians you ever meet are the ones who've suffered the most. In fact, no doubt, some of you, some of us right now are going through trials. And maybe it feels like it's hard to hold it all together because maybe it's just something really devastating. And you're thinking, so where's the joy come from? Well, what I want us to see is what James is telling us here is one of the reasons we're joyful in trials is because they cause us to grow. The fact is, if we respond to them correctly, they make us more like Jesus. And as Christians, maturity most often comes through adversity. You know, it... it, we, I know we'd all like instant maturity, you know, or boom, we're, we're just all spiritual giants, but it doesn't happen that way. And if we want to grow mature in any area of our life, it takes being broken. Somebody compared it to a field. That if you left a field fallow, you know, it looks all peaceful and serene just laying there. But you leave it sitting there for long and it sort of becomes useless. On the other hand, a field that's producing had to endure the weight of a plow. It had to be broken in order for it to produce. See, we've got to be broken up if we want to produce. It's a struggle that produces maturity. And James isn't the only one that ties these ideas of joy and struggle and maturing together. Peter did it as well. He said in 1 Peter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's, he's like, hey, so here's, here's Peter. We're greatly rejoicing Distressed by various trials. We've got that, that joy and sorrow going on. Why? Because of the proving of your faith. Pete Paul also tied these together in Romans 5. He said, verse 3, he says, Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Paul's, hey, we exalt in our tribulations. Why? Because it changes us. So all these guys are connecting joy with trials and spiritual growth. 
And the fact that they're all doing that should tell us something. These are probably the three greatest leaders of the early church. They're all telling us the same thing. James says, consider it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing. That's not a knowing that you get by by reading a book. That's the knowing you get by personal experience. Knowing this, and the results he describes for us here, so good. The testing of your faith produces endurance. See, the, the reason for the joy isn't the suffering itself. That wouldn't make sense. It's the result of the suffering, the character traits that it produces. Specifically here, endurance. Where we're facing difficulties and not running from them. Where we become battle-tested as followers of Jesus. So we're not necessarily looking for a shortcut in life. We're not just about, hey, God, get me out of this. And, And we can pray that. There's nothing wrong with praying that. Jesus, remember, in the garden prayed if it was possible for the cup to be removed. But he also submitted himself to his Father's will. And that always needs to be the overriding aspect to our request. We're not looking for shortcuts. We're, looking for the easy, we're not looking for the easy way out. We're looking for, to do what God wants, our Father. See, what you turn to in trials, whether it's to God or to any other resource that you might try, what you turn to reveals what you are ultimately trusting in. When we turn to God, our trials produce endurance. So we never give in. It's like a speech that Winston Churchill gave. That You probably heard it. He gave it in 1941 at Harrow Hall in London in the face of World War II and, and dealing with the Nazis. There's a clip from that speech we've got here. It's very short, but I want you to listen to what it is. This is Winston Churchill. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Boy, you listen to the, the conviction that he says that with. It makes you want to get up and go, right? You're ready to, ready to fight. Well, what happened was the Nazis had, had, had invaded Poland. And so the British sent troops to protect France. The Nazis went on to Belgium and they went on to the Netherlands. And then they ended up trapping the British along the northern coast of France. And, and the British were overwhelmed. And so they evacuated their troops. They got them out of there as quickly as they could. It was an embarrassing loss. And they could have easily given up as a nation. But instead of giving up, Churchill rallied his country. And they were a part of the great victory of bringing Nazi Germany down. When we face what seems like overwhelming odds as Christians, we never give in. We endure. We conquer. It's trials that help us to grow in endurance. 
And James says that results in something significant. It's perfect result from verse 4, where things are changed, where we're changed, where our lives make a mark for the kingdom of God. Some of you probably remember the old drawing of Kilroy and the words, Kilroy was here. You know, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, people put it on buildings and on sidewalks. The story about where that came from, uh, it, it varies, but everybody sort of agrees. James Kilroy, back in the 40s, was, was working on the docks in, in Boston Harbor. And uh, I think the most legitimate explanation was he was working there and, um, uh, on ships, building ships for the military. And his, um, he was putting in rivets on the ships. And they were paid by the number of rivets, that, rivets they had placed during their shift. Well, at the end of the shift, you were supposed to leave a chalk mark on your last rivet. And James did that, and he left. And over the days, he realized that what was happening is the guys coming in after him weren't so honest. And they would erase his mark and move it back some rivets so they could get claim for those being done and, and get more money. So James Kilroy is like, he's going to do something about that. And so he's just, I'm going to make it more difficult for them instead of just erasing my mark. I'm going to write on here, Kilroy was here. And that, that worked. And he just started writing it every shift. And pretty soon, people all around the world, as these ships went out, sailors opened them up and started working through the cargo area, there's the phrase, Kilroy was here. And pretty soon it seemed like Kilroy was everywhere. And people picked up the phrase and they started writing it everywhere. In fact, I told this story first hour. My son-in-law, Cameron, uh, is overseas right now in the Mideast and um, um, serving there. And uh, he was listening to the first hour and he took this picture from the Mideast right now. Here's a guy, Kilroy, who is nobody in particular, not known by anyone, but he made his mark. And what happened was things changed. People picked this up. A guy nobody would have known became known around the world. You want to make a mark? You want things to change? You want to do something significant for the kingdom? James says we should be joyful in our trials because those trials are bringing change to our lives. So that you may be perfect, he says. That's not talking about us being sinless. We're not going to get to that point here on earth. It's talking about finishing, talking about maturity, talking about being fully grown. Our trials help us to grow up. He says they also make us complete. Like the Old Testament sacrifices, you remember how the animals had to be without defect? And, 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 and so that's what we're talking about here. When, so that we can be used of God, the defects have to be gone. Going through trials with endurance removes our defects so that we can be used by God. Lacking in nothing, 
fully equipped, fully outfitted, like a soldier ready for a battle. So instead of doubting God for our, in our trials, which may be the natural response, the, our trials help us to grow, to trust him more, so that we are perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And if we want that, I think there are some things I want to mention that you need to keep in mind as you face trials. First of all, and they're pretty simple. As you go through trials, remember, God's good. He's not out to zap us. He's not sitting back arbitrarily hitting us with some tough situation. He's good himself, and he wants good for us. And no matter what you're experiencing, whatever it is, that never changes. So when we say God is good all the time, we mean all the time, not just when things go the way we'd like. So acknowledging that should keep us from ever accusing God of having done us wrong. He's good. He'll never do us wrong. And that never changes. God's good and God's great. I used to pray that maybe some of you did as children. God is good. God is great. And we know he's powerful enough to change our circumstances. And he has the knowledge and wisdom to know when and how to do that. We need to be careful that we don't question that. It's like God, so important for us. It's interesting to me that when you look at the book of Job, when, when Job begins to question the goodness of God and his fairness, God's response is not to try to convince Job that he's good. Instead, God points out to Job who it is that Job is accusing by showing Job his greatness. It's so important we, as we're going through difficult times to remember the greatness of God. We, see, we, we're not his peers. We don't get to challenge him. It's foolishness and rebellion for us to be angry at God. If you're going through some trial and you're questioning the goodness or the greatness of God, just go back and look at the way God confronted Job in Job 38 to 42. Look at, look at those chapters and Watch the way Job, after questioning the goodness of God, repents in dust and ashes. Or go read some passages that deals with who God is, like Isaiah 40 through 48. It's important as you face that time that you're convinced of God's character, that he's good and he's great. That's, that's so important because this is where people get hung up. If we take these two statements as true, that God is good and God is great, but then they face some suffering or they see some suffering, they say, well, that doesn't add up. It can't be that those things are true and there's still suffering. But there's some other things we've got to keep in mind during these times. We also need to keep in mind this isn't heaven. And I know that may seem obvious, but sometimes we act like it should be like heaven. We, we don't, we don't th think we should have any problems. Someday, one day, all believers will experience the end of suffering. It'll be amazing. We're gonna trade all of our trials 
for what the Bible calls glory. We'll experience the splendor of the presence of God. That'll be ours someday. But it's not going to happen in this life, and we can't expect it to. And the reason this world is so messed up, that's not God's fault. That's ours. We're the ones who stepped away. We're the ones who brought sin into the world. We're the ones whose disobedience brought suffering into the world. So now we live in a world that's so messed up that he told us we can expect problems and difficulties in it. It's part of the life that we cause by bringing disobedience to God into the world. So we know tough times are going to come. They're not God's fault. But those difficult times don't change the fact that he is good and he is great. This isn't heaven. And the other thing to keep in mind that we're, that we're seeing from this passage is there's purpose even in the trial. And that purpose is that I would become more like Jesus. You know, probably you've never heard anybody say, you know, I grew closest to God when my life was free from pain and suffering. Probably haven't heard that. You know, let trials come. And what happens? Well, we turn to him, right? We, be, we, we humble ourselves before him. We focus on him. And if those trials make us more like him, then there's joy in that, isn't there? I mean, isn't that the, like being like him the most important thing in our lives as believers? Remember when Paul said he wanted to know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings? Why would anybody want to know the fellowship of those sufferings? They were terrible. It wouldn't make sense. Except Paul knew there's no way to become more like Jesus than to experience difficult times. He knew there are no shortcuts. And there's nothing more that he wanted in life than to be like Jesus. So he prays to know the fellowship of his sufferings, where he's willing to face anything to be more like him. So what about us? If today you're facing some trial, you need to know and be convinced God's good. He loves you and he wants what's best for you. And God is great. He's able to do what's best for you. But you also need to remember this isn't heaven. It's coming someday if you're a believer, but until then, this, in this messed up world, we will experience suffering. And in that trial, as you endure, you've got to know that as you endure through him, you can become more like him. You'll follow him with more passion. You'll have a more fully devoted heart. And that's what every true believer wants. And that's where joy comes in our trials. Never, ever give up. James continues, verse 5, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, 
being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So you're dealing with trials and, you, and you're not sure which way to turn, what to do next and how to respond. If you're lacking wisdom when you're dealing with those, then you need to, just, you need to ask. Ask, ask. You wanna know which way to turn and how to respond, ask. Ask our Father who gives to all generously. That's just what he does. He's a giver and he does it without showing favoritism. He gives to all free and full. Ask in faith without doubting. Don't doubt God's goodness. Don't doubt God's greatness. Genuinely trust in the character of God. Don't doubt because when you doubt, it leaves your situation out of control with no real direction, like a wave in the ocean that has no shape or direction, completely unstable. What James calls here a double-minded man, where we try to go with God for a while, and then if it doesn't fix our problem, we go another way, try something else. We try something else, and then we come back to God. And, and, and some of those things we try, not necessarily wrong things in themselves, but it's the relying on them instead of relying on God. We say we're following God, but we go with whatever seems to make sense to us at the time. And we've got this divided loyalty And when we're acting that way, we shouldn't expect to receive the wisdom that God has. That request won't be granted because God is looking for reliance on him. James gives us two examples. Verse nine says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and his flower falls off and the beauty of his appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So here's the two examples, a poor man and a rich man. And, and we all fit somewhere in this spectrum, right? <laughs> poor to rich, we're there somewhere. And he's saying, hey, this poor guy, he should, he should be glorying in his high position. Maybe at one time he had money and it's gone. He doesn't have that high position, but what the high position he has is who he is in Christ. He's been raised up and seated with Christ. He's a joint heir with Christ. That's our high That's where we, so we're poor. We don't have much in this world. We should be celebrating the fact of who we are in him. That's where we find joy. And the rich man should celebrate in his humiliation. He should glory when trials come because they teach him to rely on something more, something greater than his riches. Because everything in this life is only temporary. It all fades away. Don't put your trust in anything in this life. Put it in Christ. And if you've never taken that initial step of faith, please, Don't leave here without talking with one of us about how you can know that you have a relationship with God. But as believers, no matter what you're facing, consider it all joy. Because faith that walks keeps on walking even in difficult times. Would you stand with me? Close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your greatness, and we love you for loving us. So grateful that we can walk through this life with you 
and we can represent you in a world that needs to know you. God, help us to be faithful. God, help us to endure. And if we're going through difficult times, someone, maybe people here right now going through difficult times, God, give them wisdom. And God, give them faithfulness and endurance through it all. Help them to celebrate the fact that they are being made more like your son. God, we love you. Thank you again for loving us. Pray you bless our day now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.